This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that takes a look at new films in theaters and elsewhere and compares them to movies of a similar theme from days gone by. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax. Hi, my name is Karsten Knox, and I have a blog about film. It's called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we're going to take a look at some recent and films from the past where actors known for working in front of the camera decide to step behind the camera and take charge themselves, starting with the comedy Booksmart, now in theaters, coming right up after this. Well, here we are again in CKDU's studios here in Halifax. Stephen, so good to be sitting opposite you, opposite you one more time to talk about movies. And uh, we have uh, we have that thing today that uh, you know that that saying that phrase expression goes through my head. But what I really want to do is direct. <laughs> uh, you know, there, yes. it's it's a cliche. And if you go looking in Google for actors who have made feature films as directors, there is a long list. Not too many have made them consistently, have chosen to do that with their career after having uh, found some kind of success as actors. Um, but a few do. A few, like, you know, that we'll mention later, the Jodie Fosters of the world, Mel Gibson, uh, are, character, are actors who have, have found a major stardom, but have also either leaned more into their directorial work um, and then then sort of semi-retired from the screen or, uh, you know, act uh, far less frequent, frequently. Probably the most successful actor turned director is Clint Eastwood, who we've spoken about already. We've had an episode about Clint. Uh, but this sort of thing, this goes back a ways. And I know you'll be talking a little bit about that. Um, the reason we chose to talk about actors turned directors is because Olivia Wilde, who is a quite a well-regarded uh actor in Hollywood right now. Uh, she has directed her first feature film called Booksmart, which is still in cinemas. And if you're listening to this right now and you haven't seen Booksmart, it's oh probably here in Halifax for another week, maybe. Run. Run and see it. <laughs> this is, is if not my favorite film of 2019, it's amongst them, certainly. This was a real surprise. What a treat. Uh, it's a teen comedy. And it is, in some ways, very much in that genre, very John Hughes-esque. But it is uh, it is so delightful and joyful and hits its targets. It's, it's one of those movies where every part of it, from the music to the direction, the performances, the script, the production, all of it is working at A+. So it just doesn't miss a beat. And uh, it's just this delightful story about these overachieving friends in a California high school who have worked very, very hard to get into good Ivy League colleges. And on the last day of school, of high school, one of them, uh, Beanie Feldstein, uh, who is, plays Molly, she realizes that some of the other people in her class that she felt so comfortable feeling superior to also got into Ivy League schools. And these are people who didn't seem to care about school at all. But in fact, the fact is they cared about more than just school. They cared plenty about school, but they also cared about having a good time. Yes, and being kids. Yeah, and so Molly and Amy, played by the amazing Caitlin Deaver, 
the two best friends who have supported each other and worked really hard decide they're going to have one night where they really they break the rules. They have a good time. And so they don't feel like they missed out in their high school experience. And that's what the movie's basically about them going from party to party to party to try to have the most, you know, make their dreams come true of anything that they didn't actually achieve in high school to that point, which has to do with, uh, you know, um, uh, romance. It has to do with, uh, you know, having a good time. And what really comes of it is that they realize that their classmates who they felt very distanced from all are fully rounded people. This is one of those movies where a supporting character, we could spend the whole movie with the supporting characters and it would still be awesome because everyone is so fully fledged. Yeah, it's it's kind of like Fast Times at Ridgemont High meets the Warriors. <laughs> as, <laughs> as they, they, try, they, they, they have a distinct goal. There's the one big party that everybody's going to be at and they're trying to get there. And everything is getting in their way. They don't know the address. Uh, everybody wants them to spend time at their other assorted bashes along the way. And, uh, you know, I just love this kind of shaggy dog uh, story of just, you know, trying to get over one hurdle after another and just spending time with these fabulous characters. Uh, and you're right. The, the film is so well cast. I don't think there, there's a dud anywhere in the bunch. And, uh, you know, and of course, uh, Jason Sudeikis, who is uh, Olivia Wilde's partner, shows up as uh, a teacher who and, and turns in one of her, his better performances. He's not a he's not an actor I'm always incredibly fond of. But but here he's fairly endearing and in, in way shows the dilemma of the modern teacher and what, yeah, that's right. what, he, what he has to go through and 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 how hard it is to relate to kids when you know they change year after year and you're the same person and this flood of kids keeps coming in and and their world keeps changing and yours keeps staying the same I, I, there's there's so many levels to this film uh and, I, and i've only seen it the one time and i just i can't wait to get back to it hopefully before it uh leaves the screen but you you've been able to see it a few times so i'm guessing more of those layers sort of come to the surface as you watch it you yeah you certainly notice that that there's a you get to know these characters better and better as you spend a little time with them and, and some of the dialogue sticks with you in ways that surprises me but largely the the music is so well chosen the soundtrack is full of like weird hip hop and electronica, uh, much of which I'd never heard before, but I really liked very funky, um, big, big shout out to, uh, Billy Lord, who plays Gigi. She is the crazy off-the-hook character <laughs> who uh, is, in fact, and I didn't realize this, Billy Lord is Carrie Fisher's daughter. And uh, now watching it a couple times, I can now see the resemblance. And she just is kind of this crazy sort of, she's at every one of the parties, even when she's sort of been left behind. Somehow she manages to get there before our lead character. She's vaguely supernatural. <laughs> yes, she which, is. I guess she has the force or something. But, but I, I'm glad I didn't know her story uh, before I saw the film. I'm glad that, you know, after I saw the film and looked up who was who and everything, uh, I think that might have found that distracting if I'd realized, you know, what her heritage is. Or so what, you're what saying I've just spoiled it for people? Is that what's going I don't, on? I don't think so. I think it's pretty common knowledge at this point. Um, but, uh, but she gives in this really bravura performance. What could be a joke character, but... You know, the, she gets to have her moment in the sun, as do most of the major characters, and 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 nobody is terribly two dimensional uh, over the course of this film. Yeah, and Olivia Wilde. I mean, you know, clearly she had lots of ideas of what she wanted to do with this material. She didn't write it herself, but she has four female writers uh, who have lots of experience in Hollywood on TV and in film, and. Uh, 
you know, there there's even a stop motion animation segment in the middle of the film. Like <laughs> yeah, she, I did not expect that. No, she clearly is trying to throw everything at the wall, hoping it'll stick. And I say, I mean, 99 percent of it does. Uh, and, you know, it's funny. There are cliches about movies that are directed by actors and they're frequently it has to do with the fact that they're so, you know, they're actor directors. So they're very much interested in um, indulging their leads and giving them lots of close ups and giving them long monologues and the kind of thing that are that you sort of consider to be very actory and very, very sort of stagey. But that's not what's happening here. This is a really solidly, smartly directed film with a lot of interesting visual stuff, great ideas. And uh, yeah, I just I mean, I, I compared it favorably to, like I said, all the John Hughes movies. Uh, I think it's, of course, much more progressive than those are. I mean, right now, some of them haven't aged very well. But well, it, we'll see 20 years from now how that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we'll do a um, podcast on how well has Booksmart aged. In um, but there's, you know, super bad. It's certainly in that caliber of film, even something like last year's eighth grade or or even like I would say Animal House. It has those kind of raucous laughs that it's a broad cast of people, all of whom you really, really dig. Uh, it's it's amazing. Yeah, I was giggling like an idiot throughout the whole film, I have to say. And uh, the you know, but things like the stop motion sequence, like it, it, it keeps you on your toes because once once you once they have that sequence, then you're like, oh, I guess all bets are off. You don't know what's going to come next. Uh, you know, there's there's a musical number kind of and, and uh, just lots of things that you don't expect. Characters coming out of nowhere, characters revealing sides of them you don't uh, expect to see, uh, especially Vin- um, Jessica Williams as the teacher, Miss Fine, who's, oh, yeah. you know, as we learn, you know, and something you don't think about when you're a high school student. But like sometimes you get teachers that really are not that much older than you you know if you're if you're 16 or 17 and you get a teacher that's kind of maybe just a year or two out of teachers college you know they're they're really not that much further down the path but of course you just think they're old because they're a teacher and of course uh you know she has a lot of uh interesting things about to say about being you know a single woman in la jamba to, juice to, i'm to, banned <laughs> from jamba juice <laughs> every jamba juice <laughs> things you don't know about me yeah it's just uh you know she's she gives a great performance and and it's always great to see someone like her have great material to work with maybe we should just shout out to the writers emily halpern sarah haskins who's Anna Fogel, Katie Silberman. I'm going to be checking their credits uh, for a lot, uh, a lot of, a lot more stuff down the road. Yeah, absolutely. They are. It's all just a wow experience, and I am so thrilled to have gotten to see this in the cinema now multiple times. Um, now, uh, interestingly, a more sort of familial connection. Uh, Beanie Feldstein, who plays Molly, she is one of the two leads, the co-leads, who I first was introduced to in her work in uh, Lady Bird, another film by an actor turned director, uh, Greta Gerwig. Um Beanie Feldstein is Jonah Hill's sister. And uh, this I didn't realize, but uh, but then went and watched Mid-90s, which is on Netflix now. It had a brief uh, release here in cinemas in Halifax. And uh, yeah, and Mid-90s is Jonah Hill's, she, he wrote and directed this film, shot it on 16 millimeter. And it's his kind of his, his ode, this nostalgic ode to skate punks in Los Angeles in the 1990s. Uh, what did you make of it, Stephen? I, I really liked it. And it was, it was interesting to watch it right after Booksmart because it's it's Los Angeles, obviously 20, 25 years apart, basically. Um, you know, you see what aspects of youth culture have changed. Um, you know, um, wanting to have sex and get messed up. Obviously, that part never changes, apparently. But uh, but but the ways that that uh, that 
kids go about it and the way they re- relate to adults and uh, the world around them, I think, has changed to a certain degree. Uh, certainly the kids in mid-90s are not as, uh, shall we say, woke as the kids in Booksmart. It's it's, it's a lot grittier. Um, you know, the, most of them are from uh, lower class, you know, or working poor families. And that's, a, that's an element of it that uh, really hits home uh, over the course of the film, especially as, you know, kids you know, are growing up in a society that's becoming increasingly materialistic. It's it's the years before social media. So that's kind of a, a refreshing aspect of it to think back to a time when not every kid had a, had a phone and there, there was no, uh, you know, assorted platforms that they could uh, communicate with that, you know, it had to be done over the phone or face to face or not at all. And uh, but it's not nostalgic, I don't think. Like, I mean, obviously, it's, it's set in the past. It's it. it doesn't romanticize the skater culture. It, it it shows that there are certain costs uh, to be had, uh, but there are ways to kind of survive your childhood, hmm. as it were. That's an interesting take. Yeah, I mean that's that's fair. I, what what constitutes nostalgia? I guess I I I saw the sort of golden light of of this. Uh, you know, the way he always seems to shoot in the golden hour in this film as 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 kind of dappling this thing this story with with some nostalgia but i take your i take your point certainly the lead character basically this 13 year old played by sunny suljic i hope i'm pronouncing his name right he's stevie and he hangs out in a los angeles skate shop because he's really interested in hanging out with these skaters who are a little a few years older than him of course he sees them as being super cool uh, now stevie's brother ian played by lucas hedges in a pretty unusual performance for him i'm used to seeing hedges as kind of the sensitive you know, uh, type, uh, certainly in Ladybird, he was that, but, uh, here he's sort of the muscle bound brother. Who's not above like pounding the crap out of yeah, Stevie he, he anytime really he feels whales like on him, which, you know, which is tough to watch, but it's, you know, I talked to, I, I didn't have a brother. I had an older sister. Uh, and, and, you know, at a certain age, you know, she's four years older than me and at a certain age, we just didn't associate with each other. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, here it's, you know, it reminded me of tales of people with older brothers who say that, yeah, they, they used to just go to town, <laughs> yeah. like just beat the crap out of out of each other. And then, you know, there was a certain code of silence, I guess, that was observed uh, between brothers and, you know, I guess taking out their territory uh, within the household. And mm-hmm. uh, so it, it, it rang true as tough as it as, as it is to watch. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you know, Hedge's character has some serious issues, some serious mental yeah. issues. Yeah. And, and and it seems like Stevie is not going to escape from them either. As no, he does no. A, he, there's certainly... a little bit of self-harm going on there. Uh, and their mother is played by Catherine Waterston, who is a great presence in film, always. It's good to see her. Um, but really, the joy of this film, if there is joy to be found, is it, it's just a great hangout movie. You know, when Stevie is sort of gets accepted by the older skate kids, um, you know, he's willing to sort of deprogram all his polite behavior. He steals money from his mother and he does all this pretty bad stuff. But you see how how happy he is to be hanging with these guys. And I mean, frankly, some of their, um, you know, their conversation is so lame and it's so like, they're it just, they're just not going anywhere, these guys, but they think of themselves as like super cool dudes. Um, maybe the one fellow who has, uh, has some, um, 
uh, real skills as a skateboarder, he might be able to make it. But at this point, they're just big dreamers in, you know, they're 16, maybe 17 years old. And and uh, and they they bring Stevie on and and uh, and it turns out that they are his friends. They do care about him. And, and that's uh, that's a, a lovely feeling, even with all the, these people's lives feeling so scattered and uncertain. This is a really a position uh, like it's a period of transition for them. And I really uh, I really felt that he communicated that well. Yeah. And I, I like the idea that, you know, when you're that age, when you're in your early teens or middle teens, that you kind of have to find your joy where you can, even if it means, you know, skateboarding down the middle of a, uh, a busy six lane <laughs> interchange or, or, or what have you, uh, you know, it's certainly, uh, I don't think anybody would recommend some of the behavior in the film, but that's how kids are. And that's, you know, I, I think of the dumb stuff I did as a kid and, and, and some of the weird, uh, situations it, it, you know, we wound up in over time, you know, with being chased by security guards or what have you, that kind of thing. And, uh, and so, you know, the, there aren't too many moments in this that feel false. Or, and I guess because they cast it with a lot of non-actors, mm-hmm. I think that has a lot to do with it. I mean, obviously, that's a real, you know, for, for a first-time director, that could be a real challenge if you don't, you know, know how to work with uh, with people who've never been in front of a camera before or what have you. But but uh, J- Hill seems to have related to these guys, and they, they seem to have had some sort of rapport that that got this film made. Um, you know, relatively cheaply and relatively quickly, um, you know, and, and the fact that it's shot on film, you actually see the, the film artifacts when you watch it. I, we, I watched it on Netflix. I didn't see it in the theater, but, you know, it, it feels like film. It does have a bit of a documentary air about it. And, uh, you know, I, I think that adds to the kind of veracity of the story that it's telling. And you read about Catherine Waterston. I recently watched the second fantastic beasts movie which oh yeah she's completely wasted in that movie she does she has absolutely nothing to do but they bring her back because she's an important character but that uh, tells you how off the rails that franchise is when they can't actually give her anything interesting to, to do over the course of the film uh so it was really refreshing to see her playing the mom who really has a, a tough road to hoe with her kids and and not knowing what to do as they kind of start to get further and further out of her orbit as it were and 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 it was really, really affecting stuff. And, and you, and it kind of leaves things a little bit hanging at the end, which I also like that it, it ends as kind of an open-ended question. And not a lot of films uh, are willing to go that, that route these days, but I, I really uh, thought that was the right choice here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think, uh, I think it has, it has a lot of lovely kind of qualities that just suggest that, that, like I mentioned, that hangout thing. And I, I was interested in what you were saying about how, it's this predates social media and how much social media was such a part of book smart and how the technology is incorporated into the storytelling in a way that is actually makes it seem, you know, they don't seem, the characters don't seem completely ruined and miserable by their social media experience. They're actually using it to help themselves have fun and connect, which I actually was part of what I liked about the film. There's a sense of optimism, which we don't often see. I mean, I've watched all the Black Mirror, uh, you know, and that that is that is nihilism there. That is that is anxiety around tech. Whereas Booksmart, I think, embraces what it means to these people's these uh, students and these kids' lives. Uh, but yeah, there was a certain something about the fact that uh, mid '90s is set in advance of that that brought me that made me think about the way. Um, tech is used to tell stories in movies. Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that looks at current films and older films that relate to them uh, on home video or streaming platforms or 
at your local flea market, wherever you can find them. But uh, <laughs> today, today we're talking about uh, times that, that actors have taken it upon themselves to move behind the camera, get into the director's chair and uh, be in charge of a film on their own. And, and as we, we've talked about in the first half, uh, the first segment, that there are moments or there are directors who also have uh, substantial acting careers. Uh, you know, Clint Eastwood being the most successful uh, transition, who's able to kind of straddle both sides of that fence. Uh, Ron Howard might be an example of an actor who is most decidedly strictly a director, aside from the occasional cameo and Arrested Development narration gig. Um, you know, and, and and on and on and on. It becomes something that uh, that actors uh, want to at least get a, a shot at. And if you've been on enough film sets and you've seen how a crew works and how all the parts come together, uh, it's 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 pretty natural to want to at least take an attempt at it. And you know, even Sylvester Stallone is directed and then and, uh-huh. and uh so has uh, arnold schwarzenegger has directed you know the, some of the biggest stars have at least taken a crack at it once or once or twice in their lives to uh greater or lesser uh, degrees of success uh i think stallone made the saturday night fever sequel staying alive oh yes so uh right. you know and, and uh i think that may have quashed any desire he had to do it again but um the uh i mean i'm sure this tradition goes back to the stage i'm sure stage actors wanted to Try uh, try their hand at actually directing a production. Uh, one of the earliest uh, examples of this I could find was uh, Lillian Gish directed one film and one film only. She, of course, great legend of the silent screen and also uh, appears in one of the other films we're going to be talking about, uh, a, a sound picture that she did later in her career. But she directed a, a, a short comedy starring her sister Dorothy um, when she was working for D.W. Griffith. Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen the film. I don't know if it's any good. I do like Dorothy uh, Gish. She is quite a charming actor in her own right. Uh, but that was the only time Dorothy uh, Lillian Gish decided to take a stab at it. Um, in the 30s and 40s, you find a few actors who could also direct and do both. Uh, maybe not so well remembered now, but uh, Charles Ruggles was a great character actor, usually comedic, who also uh, was was a pretty fine uh, director of dramas and comedies. Uh, another guy named Irving Pichel, who was a character actor noted for playing, uh, he played an evil henchman in uh, I think Daughter of Dracula or Dracula's Daughter, the universal horror movie. Um, you know, he played those kind of roles, but he was also uh, a reasonably talented uh, uh, feature director. But it but it was pretty unusual. Uh, the, the studio system they like to keep people in their place, basically. Like even like Preston Sturgis, he was a well known writer, uh, and the studio didn't care to let him let writers direct. They thought directors should direct, writers should write, actors should act, and everybody should stay in their boxes. But uh, once they did let him direct a film and it was a success made for not very much money, he was off and running. Um, but with, with actors, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it was uh, a lot of work that would take them from the money-making grind of starring uh, in many pictures a year. It's, it's, you know, you think about the studio system and, you know, a big star, even Shirley Temple, when she was just, you know, barely out of diapers would star in like four movies a year, which is like this incredible grind for a kid, let alone, you know, uh, and, and adults were going through the same thing. So, you know, there was no time for them to direct. Uh, but as things shifted um, and the, the studio system started to break down, the films were being ground out like clockwork on a, on an assembly line uh, kind of uh, scale. Uh I guess there was probably more mo- more room for them to maneuver, especially as more actors became free agents and started doing their own thing or, you know, having more powerful agents and, and not being tied into the studio system. And uh, I guess maybe we should start with Night of the Hunter. It seems to be kind of the famous one and done uh, kind of film. Charles Lawton, one of the greatest actors of uh, 
of the early to mid 20th century. Uh, fine actor, you know, known for Hunchback uh, of Notre Dame, uh, the, the sound remake of the Lon Chaney classic, uh, you know, and many great films later in his career. It, it, too many to count, really. Uh, played Henry VIII in a wonderful ad- adaptation of, uh, I think, The Wise of Henry VIII. Um, but, uh, you know, he also did a lot of work in theater. And uh, I think Night of the Hunter, which is uh, a very influential film that everybody should see, um, which he did in the 50s, uh, I, I feel like, uh, you know, he was bringing more of his theater background to the film because it is very theatrical, especially in the performances that it gets out of people like Robert Mitchum, who plays the uh, the titular hunter, the villain who's after uh, a couple of kids and uh, their key to a, if not a fortune, but a sizable amount of money that... Um, their mother had socked away. Or their um, father. Or their father, sorry. Yeah, their father went to prison, and that's where Harry Powell found uh, found him and found out about the money and then basically ingratiates, him, inveigles himself into their lives. Yes, and uh, marries their wife, uh, marries their mother, played by Shelley Winters, and is trying to get at the, get at where that money's hidden. Um, and uh, just a, a beautiful film, very uh, expressionistic, very much uh, atypical of the time that it was made. Um and which might be why it's still considered a classic today. I mean, uh, Spike Lee considers it one of his favorite films and even uh, refers back to it in uh, Do the Right Thing. Yeah. Radio Rahim, where he's got love and hate. Tattoo. Oh, yeah, he's got it. Well, the, he's got the rings. The rings. Yeah, because Harry Powell had it tattooed on his knuckles and uh, and he, the whole love, hate. And there's a whole spiel, a monologue. Basically, Radio Rahim like repeats, does, it. repeats yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Amazing. And, uh, you know, it gets referenced uh, all over the place. And it, uh, you know, if you're a Coen Brothers fan, you yes. owe it to yourself to watch Night of the Hunter because they refer to the film over and over in their films, either visually or in their storytelling, in the script. Um, I think in The Big Lebowski, Raising Arizona, there's all these references back to Night of the Hunter. Yeah. And I feel, aside from the theatrical uh, background that Lawton had, uh, he might also be maybe referring back a little bit to another actor who had never directed a film before, uh, uh, a little guy named Orson Welles, who made a small independent film called Citizen Kane that you've probably never heard of. Uh, but, 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 of course, Welles went on to direct many, many films uh, after that, usually uh, with some studio interference uh, and that he'd have to sort of make up for by taking on acting jobs that he didn't really care about in order to pay for his next project. Um, you know, and so... He, he might be the 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 forerunner of the superstar actor slash director, um, as as we know it today. But uh, but but Lawton's case is unique and maybe a little more typical of of the kind of actor that wants to direct and and doesn't necessarily want to have that second career behind the camera, but certainly wants to make their mark in a different way. Um, and uh, maybe I'll touch on a, a film that I watched uh, the, just uh, just recently called The Naked Prey by an actor named Cornell Wilde. Um, now, Wilde was already pretty well known as a pretty solid leading man. Uh, he's in some uh, some uh, big studio films, but his career started to dwindle into B pictures. And he's in stuff like uh, the really terrific film noir, The Big Combo, which is one of those gorgeous looking charoscuro black and white uh, films you ever want to see. And he plays a lead in, in it, and I'm, but I'm sure it wasn't helping his career to be in this film at all, even though the film's regarded now as a classic. Uh, it went unseen for a long time, was not available on home video, could only be seen in, in very limited repertory runs and that kind of thing. And 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 these are kind of the, the B-level movies that he felt he descended to and decided to take matters into his own hands. And uh, 
produced and directed a film called The Naked Prey uh, in uh, 1965, 1966, thereabouts, made this film uh, based on a true story. Now, the true story is about a man who uh, ran afoul of, I believe, a Blackfoot tribe in uh, in the Dakotas in uh, mid-1800s, thereabouts. Um, and uh, they decided they would let him live if he could outrun their best hunter. Um, and uh, so they fired an arrow as far as they could, and they wouldn't start chasing him until he'd passed that point. Now, that, that story was made into a film by uh, Samuel Fuller, the great uh, gutsy action film director of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, he made that into a film called Run of the Arrow. And uh, when I was watching The Naked Prey, I was reminded of this because that's exactly what happens. Uh, Cornell Wilde plays a, a safari leader who uh, runs afoul of a tribe in Africa um, because the men that have hired him are boorish uh, colonial racists who offend the tribe, uh, despite his advice to you know honor their request to um, to pay tribute for hunting on their land. So it's it's all set into emotion in, into motion by um, by uh, the ignorance of of the white great white hunter, so to speak. And uh, and while basically uh, when when the tribe captures them. Uh, you know, the, the other two men are, are basically executed in pretty gruesome fashion, even for the, you know, even for the time. And uh, and Wilde, ha- they decide that uh, his character, they're going to give him a chance. And so basically it becomes the most dangerous game, which is a, a story we've seen played out over and over again of a man becoming the hunted kind of thing. It's kind of a cliche at this point. But uh, this film was all shot on location. There, There's no rear projection. There's no stuff shot on sets. They were very adamant that it all be shot in the wild. Uh, and it, it brings this real authenticity. Wild does, um, I'm pretty sure he does most of his own stunts. And uh, I think at one point actually got bitten by a snake in the course of uh, one of his action scenes and had to go to hospital. But it's, it's a it's a pretty, uh, pretty exciting film uh, and does its best. Uh, I mean, there are aspects of it that have not aged well because any film set in Africa, uh, you know, at within the last, uh, you know, century or so is, <laughs> is, is basically not going to stand up to scrutiny uh, today. Uh, but the naked prey, you can at least sense that he's trying to, to, you know, make, make the tribesmen look honorable that they're, you know, that they're fighting in self-defense, um, that they're avenging the death of their fellow comp- compatriots, that it's not just blind rage or tribal ignorance that causes them to chase after him. And he only fights them in self-defense. Uh, and in fact, there's a great moment where he is able to repel them by creating a ring of fire in the grassland. And he's very happy that he didn't have to kill them. He could just drive them off, at least until they catch up with him again. Um, so there's that that uh, sort of cat and mouse game that goes throughout the film. But it, it's been put out on, on, on DVD by the Criterion uh, Collection. And I'm sure it's available on their Criterion channel, which is streaming now and, and really worth checking out. Um, now, he, he continued to act. And he made some other features. I, I watched one that I'm not going to go on about, but it, in 1975, 10 years later, he made a film called Shark's Treasure. And it just happened to come out the same year as Jaws. And he plays like a deep sea diving treasure hunter who, um, you know, runs afoul of some bandits. It's basically Treasure of the Sierra Madre set on the ocean. Um, as, you know, he becomes more paranoid and distrustful of his fellow crew members, uh, even before the bandits show up. So, it, you know, it's a familiar story. 
it's interesting that it's all shot at sea. He tries to, once again, he tries to go for authenticity, which is great, but he also wrote this film. Uh, he didn't write The Naked Prey. He bought the screenplay for that. Uh, this film he wrote, and it shows. It's it's not very good in uh, the dialogue and character department, and uh, I'm not sure that he directed much, if anything, after that, but, uh, but it kind of shows you that while uh, he, he was a capable director, maybe not the greatest writer. So it might have taken too much on. And he also produced it. So I think he might have been juggling uh, too much or wearing too many hats on that production. But uh, but by all means, see, see The Naked Prey and a not bad war film that he made called uh, Beach Red as well that's out there somewhere. But um, uh, I guess that brings us to something a little more recent times. Um, I think we're uh, I think we want to look at uh, Reds, which yeah. was a, a, a very um, a very famous film at the time which doesn't seems to have fallen out of favor maybe for its far left politics i'm not sure i'm but not i'm honestly i'm not sure how it even got made that's at the true time, yeah because it was fairly controversial i think given doing a big biopic about an american who was very very deep into the uh russian revolution that's what he's famed for and he's actually buried in the kremlin john reed um now what's interesting and i think this relates to cornell wilde and the naked prey and is the fact that what's what started to happen is actors started to make their own films and be directors but they're also directing themselves on camera so how that still amazes me that an actor can you know um find a uh um, you know, like like find a material that they want to play in and take on not only the responsibility of directing, but also sometimes being the lead, you know? That to me is amazing. Of course, a lot of actors in the 70s, you know, people like um, Jack Nicholson and um, and Warren Beatty had the, the clout to get a film made and then maybe even direct it themselves. Nicholson made a few films, but mostly just as kind of a, a side thing, whereas I got the sense Beatty wanted to do that more and more, and he certainly did with his career. He still acted pretty regularly, but I mean, once Heaven Can Wait was quite a big success for him, then Reds, then later um, where he played Dick Tracy, you yeah. know, again, putting himself right in the center of this movie. Uh, kind of amazing. Um, now, Reds is an epic. It's a three-hour-long feature about this guy named uh, John Reed. And uh, his it's largely, at least the first half of it, I would say, is mostly a romance between him and Louise Bryant, who's played by Diane Keaton. She is wonderful in the film. I think maybe some of her best work. Also showing up in the film, uh, the aforementioned uh, Jack Nicholson. He uh, is playing Eugene O'Neill, the famed... Uh, a playwright and even Gene Hackman shows up as a mag magazine editor. This really does feel like, I mean, it's made in 1981, but it does feel like it is, um, it's still part of that overall, uh, you know, that, that seventies American cinema, uh, where it just there's a sense of authenticity in the performances, in the shooting of it. Um, I really, really enjoyed revisiting Reds, and I, yeah, I was amazed. Uh, the The film, you know, it 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 shoots all over the world, um, and it it has that wonderful kind of um, sense of history. It really captures it, and I one of the best tricks that Beatty plays well if a trick may not be the right word but his his um he finds people who were actually there and he interviews them in these little sort of vignettes these little interviews that gives it a docudrama yeah they're, they're called uh, the know. witnesses I yes yeah and even um henry miller is one of them like it's people who actually knew these characters when they were young and uh, it's wonderful it's a great way to do it i'm surprised we haven't seen more uh, filmmakers do this kind of thing it, it's a great idea it really 
adds to the tone of the film and, and the, the the veracity of it. And and uh, you know Georgie Jessel, the famous you know uh, comedian and and uh, master of ceremonies, the uh, the the toastmaster general of America, as he was known. You know, very famous from mostly from from radio and and vaudeville, less so from movies and television. But uh, but he turns up uh, as as uh, talking about some of these people that he'd encountered over the years, and it's it's pretty remarkable just to, to hear them hear the stories coming from. And not every not every one of them is someone notable to history. They're just people. You know, I guess one person led to another, and they were able to find people who were still around that remembered the characters that we're seeing in this film, specifically uh, John Reed and um, and Louise Bryant, who was also a journalist played by diane keaton um and uh it you know it's got that big studio gloss but it, it's still tackling big issues you know in a way that studio films do not even attempt to do uh nowadays um and you're right about heaven can wait heaven can wait was a huge hit it didn't cost a ton of money to make so um you know they allowed Beatty to make reds because uh based on the success of heaven can wait and he was still a bankable star you know films like shampoo and so on had, had been successful enough i mean i think he sensed that his matinee idol days would be numbered i, I think i think warren Beatty is it seems to be a very self-aware guy uh-huh. um you know i mean he doesn't like you know he tries to stay out of the limelight doesn't give a lot of interviews that kind of thing um but you know i think he has a pretty decent sense of self you know i mean even if uh you're so vain is about him uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's either him or david geffen it seems like there's some disagreement about that well i always think that the nova scotia connection because Beatty does have a nova scotia connection and that his mother was originally from here so I'm thinking maybe that's the clue. I, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I don't know whether he flew a Learjet up here or not. But, uh, I, you know, I think there is at least some that that's that's the hint I'm going by. But 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 here, um, you know, I, you know, I think he he lets his ego go by the wayside a little bit because, you know, Reed is not entirely admirable. He's he's kind of headstrong and, and kind of rushes into things without always giving them proper consideration and doesn't always pick the right side in some of his arguments. And, and uh, you know, it's a fascinating character and one of the one of the maybe one of the best characters he's ever been able to play in a film. I didn't find it long. Like, oh. I, you know, I kind of went into this knowing that it was a long kind of epic movie. But to me, it just it felt like it was it moves along quickly from incident to incident. It's it's interesting to see real life things that I've read about or heard about you know, as portrayed on the screen and, um, you know, and, and having Jack Nicholson show up every now and again to deliver kind of acerbic bon mots is, is, is not, uh, not a bad thing to have either, you no. know, cause he's, he's not prominent in the film, but he kind of shows up at just the right moments. Yeah. And it's yeah, got this great, great score, but Stephen Sondheim did the music. I mean, it's not something that Stephen Sondheim tends to do on a regular basis. So obviously, um, you know, Beatty pulled out all the stops, made a, pretty great film that has aged pretty well and it, you know because it could have turned into heaven's gate which i think is what everyone was worried about with this film but it, it didn't and, and but it you know it may have scared off a lot of viewers at the time because of the politics of it because you know it's it's obviously you know the hero is a very much a pro communist russia character um but at the same time uh, it does show us the downside of that and what ultimately proves to be his downfall so. yeah and then they, that the the russian revolution didn't actually lead to the things that they were hoping that it would i think that's that kind of disillusionment is a big part of the end of the film um yeah i i felt like i i liked it i i felt like the third act is a 
bit long. There's there's uh, you know uh, there's characters traveling long distances, and it's it's contracted a little bit. But there there are two leads are separated for a long period, and you kind of want them back together. I felt like I did. And when they you know I don't think it's a big spoiler to suggest they eventually do meet up again, and that's a that's kind of a lovely moment. Um, the film is the film is great though. By all means, do seek it out. It actually was nominated for a raft of Oscars. I think it might, might have won a couple. It did win a couple, I think, yeah, but yeah, yeah, not the not the big ones, but but uh, you know, at least it was respected enough to get uh, into those categories. And maybe maybe we should talk about another uh, matinee idol uh, who went into directing, and that is uh, Robert Redford, uh, who uh, has has made some very fine films as a director. Uh, and uh, you have one in particular that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to say a few things about Quiz Show, which came out in 1994. Famously, at least to me, it was uh, nominated for Best Picture in the Oscars that year, along with um, with Pulp Fiction, uh, Shawshank Redemption, Four Weddings and a Funeral. And, uh, of course, it was Tom Hanks in Forrest Gump that, uh, that wind up winning that year. And I always think to myself, man, you know, uh, Forrest Gump versus all these classics. It's hard to believe uh, that it was the one that took it away, but it was a bit of a zeitgeist film. You can't argue with what people love, and they love that movie. Um, Quiz Show, however, was amazing, and uh, Redford's first time out of the gate as a filmmaker was Ordinary People, which also was nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards. Eight years later, he made a pretty wonderful but almost unseen movie called The Milagro Beanfield War. Uh, it's sort of a magic realist picture, and after that, a river runs through it another hit and then when he made quiz show um it uh you know that was that got a lot of i think critical acclaim i don't know if a lot of people saw it but it's based on the true story of herbert stemple and charles van doren two contestants in the tv quiz show 21 back in the 50s hugely popular show uh and uh john Turturro and ray fines play herb and charles with um rob morrow playing an investigator from Washington uh, named Dick Goodwin. Uh, this is, uh, and it's basically about the disillusionment of, of America through television in a way at a time when people really believed everything, you know, it was, it was the fifties. People had a lot of faith in the system. Everything was working well. They'd won the war. People were making money. The economy was good, uh, at least white people. And, uh, and that's something that they get into in this story is the kind of the disillusion that some people were feeling, especially people of color uh, in this kind of culture. And uh, it is a, it is one of those movies where the theme is so prevalent, prevalent in every moment through the film in a way that doesn't feel heavy-handed. It's very smartly written and has a great supporting cast, including people like Mira Sorvino, Martin Scorsese, and Paul Schofield, as well as cameos from people like Ethan Hawke and Ileana Douglas. Um, it is a real, a really smart and interesting film that uh, I hope that, uh, you know, I, I think you've seen it. You saw it back in the day, Stephen. I, I saw it when it opened and, uh, you know, I loved how this film, I mean, I knew about the quiz show scandal when I was a kid. I used to love reading books about the early days of television and how seated the pants it was and how the, the art form developed. And, and, Every every book on early television, you always see a picture of poor old Charles Van Doren sitting there, uh, you know, in a in a witness box or under, you know, in front of a Senate committee or whatever, like sweating bullets, trying to explain how they they rigged uh, the the quiz show. Was it sixty four? Twenty one. Twenty one. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, you know like how this, uh, but but how this show uh, became kind of a symbol of everything that was wrong with America at the time, like that, uh, you know, on the, on the surface, everything is, 
you know, moving like clockwork and shiny and, uh, you know, everything, the cars all have fins on it and they're super colorful and everything's dandy. And yet under the surface, there's something rotten going on. There's the House of an, on American Activities Commission. There's, uh, you know, the, the civil rights issues and lynchings in the South. There's the, the, the Rosenbergs who get sent to the electric chair for, you know, giving secrets to the Soviets. There's, you know, the Cold War is on. So the this is a great symbol for that time for the whole Eisenhower era as it were that um, that uh, you know that that shiny happy leave it to beavery surface is uh, it, you know hides a, a lot of corruption and a lot of um, paranoia and a lot of uh, racism and um, and prejudice so uh, I, I love how it, it very easily glides through all of that and and um, and without being too too obvious about it, I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's it's pretty clear what the movie's doing right from the get go. But it's it's so well handled, and I, I think because I think Redford really knows a good screenplay when he sees one. Um, I think that's a, a strong element through all of his work. Uh, that that you know, I never thought that I would enjoy a film about fly fishing, but A River Runs Through It was a really delightful film, and it also gave us uh, Redford surrogate Brad Pitt. I think in one of his first major dramatic roles of note. Uh, I think after California, anyway, uh, and Thelma and Louise. Um, but um, uh, but here the writing is so smart, especially when you you get the scenes with the, the two executives played by uh, David Paymer and Hank Azaria, two great character actors who really know how to kind of make those kinds of characters come alive. They're, they're TV executives slash shysters, and uh, I, I, those are some of my favorite scenes uh, in the movie. Anything with those two guys, um, you know, they're basically explaining why they're doing this, and and, and then you know, and the, the injustice done to poor. Uh, Poor Herbie Stemple. Uh, it's, it's definitely one of Turturro's best performances as well. So we start to see more and more often here uh, that not only uh, male actors, but female actors are getting behind the camera. Uh, and and certainly, as I mentioned, uh, Jodie Foster is someone who's who has become quite well known as a capable filmmaker. Um, my probably one of my favorite filmmakers in recent years is Sarah Polly, who made Away From Her, adapting the uh, Alice Monroe short story and and famously convinced Julie Christie to basically come out of semi-retirement to act for her. Uh, Gordon Pinsent and Michael Murphy in that great film. Um, and uh, she's gone on to do uh, Take This Waltz, which is a sort of a, a romantic drama set in Toronto that I was a big fan of. And then Stories We Tell, which I really loved, sort of a half documentary, mostly documentary with a little bit of fictional reenactments going on. Um, but uh, you showed me Bastard Out of Carolina, which is Angelica Houston's, I believe, her her debut as a filmmaker. Yeah, uh, of course, Angelica Houston is the daughter of director John Houston. And uh, uh, in a lot of the interviews she's been giving lately around um, uh, her role in John Wick 3, uh, where she plays this kind of Eastern European ballet uh, mistress slash assassin expert um, tra tra assassin trainer um but she's been talking she's been doing a lot of sort of long form interviews with magazines and on podcasts and talking about her relationship with her dad and when he kind of put her in one of his early movie or one of sorry put her in her first wasn't one of his early movies but in in i think the late 60s they he filmed a thing in ireland called a walk with love and death that was a big flop and uh you know and they 
their relationship really suffered as a result of it because he was very hard on her on the set. I think he saw which way the film was going. It wasn't a very strong story. And, you know, she had a certain inexperience in front of the camera that uh, he had problems with. Um, so, uh, but she, you know, she worked with him again in Pritzi's honor and uh, and the dead. So clearly uh, they were able to at least patch things up uh, enough to to make a, at least a couple more films together. Um, but, uh, but she also, you know, worked behind the camera, uh, on, on a few projects. And, uh, this, this was maybe the best known and, and probably most controversial of the bunch. It was, um, a film that, uh, I believe was done for, um, one of the cable networks originally, I think may, maybe even HBO, I'm not sure, but, um, it's, it's about, uh, a young girl and, uh, you know, growing up in a, poor Southern family uh, who has an abusive stepdad, uh, a very abusive stepdad. And in fact, the uh, extent of his abuse was uh, one of the issues that the film had based on a, a novel, um, which I think is based uh, by by Dorothy Allison. I think it might uh, be based on her own childhood and her own experiences. And uh, the, uh, the parts of the film are kind of hard to watch. And I think that was an issue with the original producer. I think it wound up on Showtime. And uh, I think initially it was banned in Nova Scotia. I think there was an issue with it because there, there was a scene where a child is uh, sexually assaulted by her stepfather. And it uh, for the uh, the um, motion picture ratings board here, at least here in Nova Scotia, they crossed the line. However, I think uh, eventually it was allowed because it does portray the real serious fallout of, of child abuse and what it really means to, to suffer through that and to have to experience it. And uh, And I think the importance of that over overruled the uh, the initial decision but it's um it's a stunning stunning portrait with some great performances uh, uh jennifer jason lee is is the stepmom who doesn't really you know she's trying to work and support the family the husband loses his job and he's fairly ineffectual at at being a provider and of course the guilt and shame of that sends him into a spiral that makes him take it out on on the kids and on his wife and uh, and there are some real repercussions there, uh, and it's a great ensemble cast. Uh, Len, you know, Glenn Headley plays uh, the aunt, who um, you know who has kind of a tragic storyline. Uh, Lyle Lovett shows up as a family friend at one point. Uh, Dermot Mulrooney plays uh, another father who uh, comes to an early end. Christina Ricci shows up for one scene. I, I the film isn't perfect. Uh, I feel it, it's a bit choppy, and I feel that maybe parts of it were cut out to make it fit a, a less than two hour running time. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and it, you know, on, on a certain level, it has certain kind of made for cable values, but it, it you know, it is set in the, what the 1940s, I think late forties, early fifties, mm. something, yeah, like something like that. Uh, and I think it gets the period detail, the way people dressed, especially, you know, when they're wearing hand-me-downs and that kind of thing. I think it's fairly authentic in its portrayal of people's day-to-day lives. And I like that aspect of it. And, uh, and there are some great performances in it. So if you can find a copy, I don't know where it's currently available. We watched it on a laser disc, but uh, it, it kind of makes me wish that Angelica Houston would do more directing because um, I, I think she has a good hand with the actors. I think there's some post-production issues around the editing that might have harmed the film, but it, it definitely is worth seeing. Yeah, I know. I agree. It. Uh, I was quite surprised by how uh, intense the violence was. And of course, you know, I can understand why people 
took it badly and, you know, wanted the film banned in some places. Or uh, It's based on a novel by Dorothy Allison, a scripted by Anne Meredith. And yeah, as you said, Jennifer Jason Lee, who in the 90s and late 80s really made a habit of playing characters who were either physically or emotionally abused. Um, and But she always found their soul in, in some kind of core uh, in a way that I think she was, I think she's a very brave, a sort of courageous actor. And uh, she actually, it's funny, I, I was watching, recently watching Elizabeth Moss in, um, in A Handmaid's Tale, and I was thinking about how Elizabeth Moss has a little bit of whatever J- Jennifer Jason Lee has, which is a, a rawness that is communicated on screen really just basically a th- authenticity is what i'm talking about um but yeah the and then her and then her 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 daughter who's born out of wedlock ruth ann who they nicknamed bone is played by jenna malone who is also very good in the film and has gone on to you know great things and things like the hunger games um she's she's really good in it uh, and glenn waddle or waddell who plays that stepfather who's so uh who's you know intense and then um oh i should sorry he's the actor's name is ron, ron eldard ron eldard plays glenn and uh yeah he's 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 a piece of work um it's it is a uh it's a in some places a nightmarish vision of you know this impoverished rural community in South Carolina, but in in some ways it's it's a story of survival as well. So yeah, I'm really glad you showed it to me, and I and I, I it's, it is too bad that it's you know it's hard to find. Again, I don't know if Houston has gone on to make more make more films, but I she made two other features. Okay, um, and uh, one was Agnes Brown, which was a, a drama set in Ireland that was fairly well received, and then she made a film that wound up I think it started out as a feature. F- film but wound up uh, being aired on TV instead of in theaters called uh, Riding the Bus with My Sister with Rosie O'Donnell that was not so well received right, so, right. For, for any number of reasons. Um, now we're starting to get short in time. Yes. Um, before quickly. we wrap up I just want to shout out to um, a, a film made by a character actor who's gone on to make a lot of feature films. It's funny how some character actors get their chance to write or direct. I'm thinking of people like Taylor Sheridan, who made Wind River and and uh, and has written a lot of great scripts. Um, but in this case, it's the station agent from Tom McCarthy, who is one of those character actors you will recognize, but he's kind of blink and you'll miss him roles in things like Good Night and Good Luck. And he was in the fifth season of The Wire. Um and uh, the station agent is his screenwriting and directing. Uh, I believe it, it was his his debut. He also made the visitor and and he made the Academy Award winning um, um, spotlight. Spotlight. Yes, thank you, Stephen. <laughs> um, so yeah, this is uh, watching the station agent again. I what a movie! I mean, it's a wonderful film. Peter Dinklage plays a guy who named Finn who works at a model train store uh, and then eventually inherits a property, which is a railway station house somewhere called Newfoundland, New Jersey, which is an actual place that exists. And there's uh, a New Brunswick in New Jersey, too. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, and it's midsummer and Finn moves there to be alone and read and watch trains. It basically is the the his whole ambition. But right across the road from the shack is Bob, Bobby Cannavale's coffee and hot dog truck. So in Cannavale plays Joe. Joe, who is is a really sweet guy, and they become friendly, and then eventually they're joined by Patricia Clarkson, who plays a woman named Olivia, who's a painter still grieving the death of her son two years before, and uh, and then Michelle Williams also is has a role as a local librarian, and it's um 
it's it's a wonderful small little indie movie. It just has a really nice flavor to it. It really captures the kind of the flavor, the the kind of location of, of a New Jersey summer. Uh, it's an ode, almost an ode to not doing anything but just spending time with friends. Uh, and Dinklage is so great in it. You know, he's he can do dour and serious so well, but when he smiles, he really lights up the screen. Yeah, it would make a good double feature with Jim Jarmusch's Patterson. Another great kind of hanging out in New Jersey, Jersey kind of film. It has Absolutely. the same kind of feel. I think they go together well. You've been listening to Lens Me Your Ear is the film podcast. And uh, we're wrapping up here our look at uh, actors who decide to become filmmakers once or many times. And Stephen, uh, are there anyone else that you think uh, should get a, a nod? Well, when we were talking about Angelica Houston, I suddenly remembered Ida Lupino, who was uh, she was an actor who came from a long line of British stage performers, um, and she moved. She emigrated to the states and kind of dropped her British accent altogether. Worked with Houston on some films. Uh, wonderful actor who who you know could play these hard boiled dames in film noir, but she also played uh, in comedies and all kinds of things. She became a director early in the 1950s when a woman becoming a film director was really just not done. Uh, it was unheard of, and she made she you know made these scrappy, I guess, self-financed films like The Bigamist and The Hitchhiker, uh, which are really great dramas. The, the Hitchhiker is a terrifying thriller, actually, that uh, shows up on TCM all the time. We're seeing. But, uh, you know, she was a real pioneer in so many different ways. And I really, uh, really feel like I should have mentioned her right off the bat. All right. Fair enough. And I didn't mention Ray Fiennes, whose most recent film, The White Crow, was pretty great. He it's about the, the biopic about Rudolf Nureyev. It was in cinemas a little while ago and should be coming to other platforms soon. I I recommend it. I wouldn't wouldn't miss that. That's a, that was quite a delightful film. Um, so uh, here's what we you need to know about Lens Me Your Ears. We are reachable on multiple platforms, including Facebook and on a Twitter. Uh, Lens Me Your Ears is our Twitter account. And Stephen, you have a Twitter account, too. I do. At NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. My Twitter account is Flaw on the Iris, which is the name of my blog. I hope that you're listening to this podcast on various places you get podcasts. And uh, if you like what you're listening to, please give us a good review and maybe some five-star love. Uh, we also have a Patreon account, which uh, we you can give us a little coin to help us support us because we do this for free and we'd always <laughs> appreciate the help. Uh, many, many thanks to uh, CKDU 88.1 FM for the studio facilities and for airing the show every second Tuesday at 5.30. And also, thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for dotting the I's and crossing the T's, and many, many thanks to you for listening as well. I hope you'll stop by again and uh, give us another try as we continue our exploration of, uh, of movies and talking about them. Thanks, and see you next time on Lens Me Your Ears. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to lensmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 